Welcome to the Cosmic Business Podcast. I'm Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer, business coach, and CEO of Weave Your Bliss, a company with the goal to help a million spirit-led entrepreneurs build a cosmic business around their genius so that they can earn wildly well and bankroll the change they want to see in the world. A cosmic business is a new paradigm business that believes in collaboration over competition, building a business around your unique genius, aligning to the planets and your intuition, leading with your values, putting your health and the health of the planet first, treating people fairly and building giving into your business model. Sounds fabulous, right? On this show, I will take you behind the scenes of my thriving multi-six-figure business, including strategy on closing more sales, nurturing your community online, plus astrological insights to optimize your business and life. We'll also feature conversations with spirit-led business owners, creatives, and change makers to inspire you. I'm coming to you from our regenerative farm in rural Maine, my happy place, where we are currently creating space to welcome community for retreat and earth reconnection. Let's jump into the conversation. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Cosmic Business Podcast. I'm Paula, your host. If this is your first time here, welcome. I'm so grateful that you're here. This week, we have a really exciting interview with Dr. Robert Svoboda, who is my friend and mentor and client. I've also helped him build his multi six figure business online. And we've done three other episodes together. So make sure you do check those out as well. If you like this episode, which is going to be all about the ancestors ahead of the ancestor fortnight, that's going to start near the end of this month. So if you like this episode, definitely check out the episode we did on Saturn a few months back. We did an episode on money and money karma a while back. And then also there's an introduction to him, his work and how he discovered all of these things. If you want to know more about his background, we did that episode early on. I think it's like episode 11. I'll put all those links in the show notes for sure. But in this episode, we talked about the importance of honoring our ancestors for creating success and harmony in our life how to do this easily on your own, why the Ancestor Fortnight is a great time to focus on this and what not to be doing during this time. And you get to hear a little bit about Dr. Sabota's troubled ancestors and how he works with them. So if you have some ancestors that may have been problematic, maybe still impacting you, you don't want to miss this episode. All of this work that we talk about in this episode is a remedy. When we are thinking about having a spirit-led business, we want to be in a flow with these divine forces, these greater forces that help us to align and actually are sources of our power. So we actually talk in this episode too about the Indian calendar and its logic as far as we go through Shravana and then we go through Ganesh Chaturthi, this time to celebrate Ganesha, who's the remover of obstacles. And then we go into the Ancestor Fortnite and we're honoring our ancestors. And there's this logic that happens. It's actually a power building, you know, building our personal power so that we can move forward. So he talks about that in detail too here, which you don't want to miss for sure. So before we jump in, I do want to let you know that if you are not signed up for my weekly newsletter, my resonance love letters that come out every Friday, I highly recommend that you do sign up for that. It's totally free. This is my exclusive insights on the current astrology, on business strategy to help you in your spirit-led business, and also behind the scenes of my work and life. 
It is the most personal, the most candid that I get in any space. I really value your eyes and your time. So I want to make sure that I'm sharing things that are potent are going to help them move the needle forward for you. Also, if you have my astrology guidebook, which comes out every October, so there's going to be a new one soon. But each year you can drop that into your Google calendar. And this allows you to see all of the auspicious dates, the hand-picked ones, and then also the Indian calendar dates so that you can plan ahead. It also lets you know when the full moon is, the new moon, what nakshatra it's in, if there's an eclipse. There's a lot of information in there that will help you throughout the year to plan. And in my newsletter, I will also be sharing context and information. So as the nodes move, as things change in the sky, I also give context in that newsletter. So make sure you go to the show notes and you are signed up to receive those Friday newsletters. And I also drop a newsletter at the beginning of the week to let you know about the latest podcasts. You don't miss out on those. Whenever there are offerings or things that might help you in your life, I'm sharing those there as well. So it's the place to learn the most and get the most access. Also, I accidentally said that the Sarva Pitru Amavasya and Eclipse is on October 15th. It's actually on the 14th. So please forgive me when you hear me say that in this episode. So I'm now excited to present my interview with Dr. Robert Soboda about the ancestors. Hi, Dr. Robert. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. So today we're talking about ancestors and their importance for a good life, our relationship with them being in good order um, and the results of that. And so the ancestor fortnight will be starting on September 29th and it will end with Sarva Pitru Amavasya, that's the the new moon of the ancestors, on October 15th, which is also an eclipse. So I wanted to just start out by having you talk about why the ancestors or why honoring the ancestors is so important or having a relationship to them and understanding where you come from. Well, even when I was young, I had an appreciation for my ancestors because both my parents were interested in uh, their genealogies. And on the my father's side, it goes back directly to a um, small village on the outskirts of a small city on the outskirts of a bigger city in, the, in Moravia, which is one half of the Czech Republic. On my mother's side, it's a little more complicated, but I always had some understanding that the influence of my grandparents was strong on my parents and therefore on me. And the influence of my great-grandparents would have been a strong influence on my grandparents and so on. It was, however, only after I went to India and met Vimalananda that I really got a better understanding of just how pervasive and how fundamental this influence is. So could you say more about why, like, like before we even go into how we honor them, let's talk about why we should honor them. And I'm going to mostly follow what Vimalananda told me here. And he said, of course, the most important reason to honor them is because, after all, without them, you would not be here. So mm -hmm. they, whatever they have done, however they have lived in their lives, you have to be thankful to them because without them, you would not be you. You might not exist. You might be someone else, but you definitely would not be who you are. So you have to be thankful to them for that. 
you don't have to be thankful to them if they are influencing you in undesirable ways. And what he said is that when it comes to your blood relations, to your blood ancestors, your genes and chromosomes have come directly from them. He said it, it really honestly does not matter whether you believe that they still exist after death or not. And he did believe that they continued to exist. He said, even if they, they themselves don't consider, continue to exist after death, their genetic patterns and their epigenetics, which genes were methylated and therefore activated or deactivated and how they were activated and what that pattern was, all those patterns are patterns that will have manifested in the lives of their children and their children and all the way down to you. Now, it is true that once you get past about seven generations, the influence is less than 1%. That's interesting because of the indigenous belief of, you know, thinking of seven generations ahead when you're making a decision. And Vimla Ananda, of course, owned thoroughbred racehorses. And if you cross a non-thoroughbred with the thoroughbred and you keep crossing it with the thoroughbred after seven generations, it's regarded as a thoroughbred. So there's very much something about this seventh generation thing. So the seventh generation is having a much reduced influence on you than, let's say, your parents do. But your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-grandparents are still having a significant influence on who you are. And if it is um, whether or not they still exist or not, it's because those patterns are still there and those patterns can still be activated in you. And if those are good patterns, if your if your great grandparents were saints, then that's great. That will be having a good effect on you. But most human beings are not saints, and most human beings are focused on something they are very much attracted to, or very much trying to avoid. And strong emotions get accumulated around these positions, and they can definitely influence the patterns that are present in those people and therefore in their descendants. And so Vimalananda's opinion was it's extremely important to negate as far as possible these negative patterns from the ancestors, because otherwise, since they're in your genetics and your epigenetics, they're affecting you 24 hours a day. So you may be meditating hours and hours a day, but the rest of the time that you're not actively keeping your mind focused, then what's happening is these other patterns are influencing you. Yeah, I think it's worthwhile also to differentiate that honoring the ancestors doesn't mean that we are giving them a pass or that we are saying what they did was okay, or what we're trying to do is harmonize and clear maybe some of the karmas that they have done or make it easier for ourselves to, to live in this world now. And, and Vimal Ananda emphasized this as well. He, you know, he said that in certain societies, most of them much less complex than modern societies, there is an assumption that the ancestors will get reborn in the family regularly. In fact, there, there are some cultures I've read about that expect that the grandfather will get born to the grandchildren as a son or daughter, and the grandmother will get reborn to the grandchildren. Or they name people after the dead, like in Jewish culture, there's a lot of naming after people who've died. So that's a reinforcement to encourage those very ancestors not only to be present, but for their personalities to continue to persist. Vimalananda thought this was a very poor idea because you're reinforcing, again, if, if these are transcendent saintly beings, that's great. Otherwise, 
Whatever imperfections they have, you will be reinforcing those imperfections and making them all the more difficult to deal with in your own life. So his feeling was much more that we need to honor the ancestors, attempt to do what we can to symbolically satisfy residual desires they may have, because that's the thing. Someone dies, usually they die with some residual desire. And let's just assume for a moment that they continue to exist after death. They are going to be looking for some way to get back into a physical body in order to try to experience that desire. And if your physical body happens to have a similar genetic and epigenetic makeup, then it's going to be easier for them to align with your body and sometimes to actually act through you. So you may be thinking you're doing, you're acting on your own when in fact it is an ancestor acting through you trying to do something that maybe you would not do otherwise. I think it's hard to know. I mean, maybe you have some thoughts like whether this, we can tell a difference between if it's an ancestor disturbance or if it's our karma or if it's all just mixed up in one big stew. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. In my experience, it's difficult to know. I think that if there's a particular ancestor that you, that you know is really problematical and you know the flavor of that ancestor, you may be able to identify him or her influencing you at a certain time. But I think it's because it's so fundamentally pervasive at such a non-rational level, not irrational, but non-rational. It's beyond rationality. Your, your, your genetic material has nothing to do with the manifestation of your awareness. It has everything to do with creating the structure through which your awareness manifests. So in the case of the ancestors, most of the time, the influence is, is so fundamental and, and, and so unconscious that it's really hard to identify that it is an ancestral effect. And that's why we have things like Jyotish and divination to try to indicate in a certain situation where there is an obstacle, where there is an obstruction, whether in fact that may be coming from from the ancestors or not. So I think just it's almost like good hygiene to work with the ancestors. And, and we'll get into how in just a second, but you brought up Jyotish and I was going to say the fourth house is such an indicator for ancestral things because it's the darkest place in the sky. It's actually one of the most mysterious houses in the chart because it represents our roots, what we come from. It represents our ability to teach and share and it relates to our most unconscious mind. It can relate to sleep, relate to our community, but like not just the community, like our network, but our people, like the people who are our family Directly adopted and directly indicates our mother, Mm -hmm. directly indicates water, meaning emotion. So it directly indicates those things that are most, most, I mean, how do we start off in life? We grow in the mother in a, in a very watery environment and we emerge a dark environment. We emerge, we're connected to the mother and we're, we're sucking juice out of her. This is the basis of every human being. And also it represents satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction in life. So for example, if we see Saturn influencing the fourth, we know there's going to be some dissatisfaction. There's going to be like, especially if Rahu is influencing the fourth, there's going to be a craving for understanding where we came from or to understand why our ancestors did what they did or understand ourselves at a deep level or understand our mother at a deep level. There'll be a drive towards that. And there may be some confusion. 
the mind sending you in different directions that don't really relate. And ancestor work could actually help relieve some of that. And that might be actually what Saturn would represent too, aspecting that area that we have to actually figure out where we come from. So there's like the actual lineage. And maybe you can talk about your own story with your family and how that's helped you. And then there's actually the the doing of the, you know, the ancestor honoring. So maybe let's start with like the lineage part and how important it is to discover these things about ourselves. Lineage. And of course, here we are, in fact, mostly talking about blood lineage. But really, this applies to any lineage that you have become part of, that there is there is going to be, even if it is not directly via genetic material, there's still going to be a strong influence. Any any family that you are in some way genuinely a part of is going to be influencing you in some way. And it's you really have to evaluate that carefully and think about what your responsibilities are in that regard. So, I mean, in the case, for example, of Vimalananda, who had his own children, on the other hand, it was I who served him like a son for the last eight and a half years of his life, and I cremated him. And as a result of that, I am now involved in his family, for better or worse. His his the 15 generations who lived in Bombay, the generations before that who lived in Gujarat, I have a responsibility to all of them because I have taken on that responsibility. But I also have a responsibility to the members of my blood family who are my ancestors. And on my father's side, it's not particularly complicated. You know, Moravian peasants, it's fair. They came over and became farmers and, you know, were hard workers in Texas. That's not that complicated. I mean, it requires attention, but it's not that complicated. My mother's side, it's a little more complicated because great-great-grandfather Joseph Henry Smith elected to flee Texas at the end of the Civil War and go down to Brazil where he could still own slaves. And he continued to be there until a couple of years after Brazil finally abolished slavery in 1881. And then he came back, bringing back his kids, who then were not exactly well aligned with society in Texas at that time. And and he got into some trouble and there was a big uh, court case that got written up in the New York Times back in the 1880s. And he um, ended up going to the uh, federal penitentiary. That didn't help out his daughter, great-grandmother Josephine of mine. And she had a number of, of vicissitudes in life involving her son, who was my mother's father. And all of these things influenced me. So I certainly pay some attention to my mother's father, who I did know. But when I am focusing on my ancestors, I pay more attention to great-grandmother Josephine, who had a very hard life, and to great-great-grandfather Joseph Henry Smith, who, number one, of course, named his daughter Josephine after himself, and who is substantially responsible for what happened to great-grandmother Josephine. So I certainly feel compassion for everyone, but I feel a lot more sympathy for great-grandmother Josephine than I do for great-great-granddad Joseph. Mm-hmm. And I make it very clear when I, when I salute them that this is the situation right now and that she 
certainly I, I appreciate whatever blessing she can offer, but it, it's my responsibility to try to do nice things for her. But it's not that much of my responsibility to try to personally do nice things for great, great granddad, because it's his responsibility, wherever he is now, to be doing things for her and for the rest of the family. As Vimal Ananda pointed out, it doesn't obvious, almost certainly, all of those ancestors have been reborn and, and they may not remember anything of what their ancestry was. But the reality is that since that is still in the past, it is still bound up in their prarabdha, bound up in their sanchita karma. It's all still part of what is making them who they are. And they are still going to need to deal with that if they want to continue evolving. So they themselves need to end. And when you do something for like a great, great grandfather like that, the whoever in whatever kind of condition that individual may be now, that person may have no clue as to what's going on, but some effect is going to be there. And it's our responsibility for to to try to make it as as positive an effect, overall positive as possible. And you talk about just how it's helped you to know this storyline, like to understand this, like we can honor our ancestors if we don't know our own lineage. You know what I mean? And and it's very beneficial to try to at least go and find out, like, even if you do like 23andMe, it's got the technology now to show you like what villages in, for me, it's Ireland that a lot of my people come from, I can go and see, right? So can you just talk about like, from your perspective, how that's been helpful just to know this story? It's actually been extremely healthy, uh, helpful because I've also gone to 23andMe and I found out that I'm 0.5% Ashkenazi Jewish and 0.5% Congolese. Always felt an affinity towards Africa. That's one thing. But it, it's having learned the story of great grandmother Josephine and about the father of my grandfather, who was of quite unknown ancestry, who kind of appeared and then disappeared again. He's the only one that we can imagine could have had Jewish and Congolese ancestry. And so it's extremely interesting to see that here was, first of all, she got taken down to Brazil. So her own karmas, to be born in Texas, taken down to Brazil, have to come back to Texas, get connected to Jewish and African influences, and then have to be handling all of this on her own. Her mother died. Her father remarried in Brazil. And, and after the conviction, the her stepmother went back to Brazil with the kids. So just the understanding of not even a really understanding on some kind of seriously rational level, but just kind of a, a subconscious understanding of how all of these things were moving and, and, and moving around her. And she was simply being caught up in the waves of all these karmic influences happening and being specifically influenced by the karmas that her father was performing, how that influenced her, how that influenced uh, my grandfather, who was definitely regarded as and would have been back in when he would have been coming of age. This was back in the, the 1910s and the 1920s when racism was really extremely prominent 
in the U.S. back then. So his father was nowhere. There was some hint that maybe something, there might have been something going on that was not completely nice and lily white. And that itself had an influence on him. And there's a story in the family, I don't know whether it's true or not, but that he was offered an opportunity to get ahead in life by joining the Ku Klux Klan Mm. and declined As a result of which, in fact, his business failed and during the Depression, people would borrow, take things on credit and then never pay him the so-called upstanding citizens in the community. It's it's just, you know, just understanding more about this history and where it came from. It provides a much better perspective for me on the challenges that he had and how they influenced him and how how difficult it was for him to try to overcome them. And so I can have much greater sympathy for him and therefore his kids, his, my mother and her two brothers and, and their children and how those children have been, have been having to cope with and compensate with all of this kind of energy that has been continuing to move forward as time has gone by. I find it also fascinating, like for myself, you know, I'm a member of the Cherokee Nation. I grew up in Oklahoma. I knew I was part of that lineage, but my grandmother, who was my connection, died when I was seven. And so there's a way in which, you know, the the universe has kind of pulled me back into that world, whether I wanted to or not. It's like my ancestors are like, no, you need to pay attention to this, right? And I meet my husband who's been involved in Lakota ways for over 20 years and end up going to ceremony through that and kind of reconnecting with that heritage. It's sort of healing just to know that that exists and then to see how it manifests in the world and sort of pulls you back towards doing some of the the ritual or for example you having this history in Brazil and then you've been asked to teach in Brazil and you've spent a lot of time in Brazil and you have some good contacts down there so there's like some coherence that we can have in knowing that story and then seeing how it manifests in you know like an invitation or or the, you know the universe getting you to kind of do the rituals in that place. Does that make sense? Definitely. And I, th- I think that that's one of the things that, in fact, this is a very good point. This is one of the things that is we are able to the history of great granddad Joseph substantially because of my cousin Marjorie, who is a cousin on my mother's side and therefore through grandfather Roy. And she can find this out because, of course, nowadays we have more access to more easy access to newspaper archives and to the Mormons who have created, you know, genealogical uh, 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 records for so many millions of families and for 23andMe and for things like that. So, in my opinion, there was a point, particularly in sort of the modern world, that was being very strongly influenced by the Enlightenment era European thinking that we don't. And, you know, as it manifested further and further and got to the place of like communism, where get rid of all the ancestors, kill off everybody and start from the beginning. But now the ancestors are getting an opportunity to come back and to display to us how they are influencing us and how we need to pay attention to them. So like your Cherokee ancestors would have been suppressed for decades. But now that that suppression is not so much anymore, now they're getting an opportunity to start influencing the people that are their descendants and to invite those descendants to re- create 
to reawaken the connection that already does exist and should be a lot more specific and and manifest than it has been up to this point. Kind of interesting. Just as an aside, I was thinking about how well the Cherokee Nation keeps in touch with all the people who are, because I live in Maine, you know, but I get a newspaper every two weeks. They have this national holiday that happens every year on Labor Day where they're celebrating and they invite everybody to come back to Tahlequah and celebrate the different, you know, elements of Cherokee culture. There's the powwow, there's all these different things. But they have like a, a television station online where you can watch shows about different people from the past. And they're really trying to teach the Cherokee language. And, you know, they have obviously like resources to be able to do that because of casinos and things. So they've like made a business bet, but then they're reinvesting that all in the community. So it's really interesting how that's helping me learn about my culture, even here in, in rural Maine, you know, so... And and I think that this is a really, really good use of that money that they're making. Um, we have a friend in Houston who's who's also a an enrolled member of the Cherokee, but doesn't identifies really more as white than as, as Cherokee. But as a result of knowing this and as a result of having those having all of this, these resources that are now being made available is educating herself about her Cherokee heritage and and appreciate and she's from Oklahoma and appreciating just what that means. And, and I think that that there is great benefit for people who have heritage like this to be able to bring it into consciousness in in real time, because I think that itself has a beneficial effect on the ancestors. Yeah. It's super interesting, too, because just to bring it back to how we met, you know, I was actually trying to flee my family of origin for Christmas. And I end up in this small rural village in India, where you just happen to be coming for Ayurvedic treatment. I was my first exposure to Ayurveda. I'm reading your book, and then you're sitting next to me at dinner. So that also has an ancestral quality, because we both were talking to each other, you know, you're from Texas originally, but you lived in Oklahoma for a while, there was just sort of a simple way that we slipped into our dialect and we're playing cards. And I'm like, I feel like I'm at home, you know, but I'm in this rural village in, in India. And that also felt like an ancestral connection, like coming back to home away from home. So people may have similar experiences. Oh, I, I certainly think. And, you know, I've been to do Panchakarma in many places. This was the only time I ever went to that place in rural <laughs> Karnataka. <laughs> and, you know, it was you and me and Dr. Scott Blossom and Krishna Das and Roshni. And so a number of when the ancestors are properly focused, then this is the kind of thing they can do. They can because one thing that really is very poorly understood by by most people is that even at let's say there's you as an individual and you get re you get born and then you die you get reborn then you die and then you get reborn but even while you were let's say you were born in a particular family you now have died and you've gone off somewhere else but that connection to that family still remains there and there is a part of you that is going to be first of all having to having to align with all of the ancestors of that family and there is a process of evolution that's happening with all of those ancestors in an ongoing way and and is happening over generation after generation 
ever since I was in Africa and got exposed to, uh, uh, you know, visited Oshun's shrine without knowing it and went through the Congo and then joined the tribe in Kenya, I've really felt a connection, a perceptible connection to African ancestors and not just the ones from the Pokot tribe, but it's obvious to me, at least, that yes, they're ancestors. Each tribe has its own set of ancestors, but there's also kind of a pan-African all of the really eminent ancestors in each tribe are part of this even bigger kind of ancestor group that is all working together to try to keep uh, all of the all of the all of the beings and all the people in Africa evolving in the right direction and after being you know after feeling this i have a sensation that that is true for certainly true for india and i expect that it's true for a lot of different places where you have where the ancestors and you know in the united states we have a very complicated situation because we have a number of different native tribes all who've all been afflicted by immigrants and then, of course, all the Africans who came over and were afflicted and brought their own ancestors and then ancestors now from all different parts of the world of people who are coming here to to have material prosperity, but are bringing all of their ancestor karma along with them. So there's there's now it just in in this space of North America and especially in the United States, though, of course, there are immigrants in Canada and Mexico also. But here it's like part of the challenge that we're experiencing in in society is the fact that these ancestors are all trying to to grab our attention and they have not yet found a good way to be really harmoniously aligned with one another so part mm. of part of what our responsibility is natives of the United States is when we're doing ancestor worship to acknowledge the ancestors of everybody in the country and how we salute them, but where we have to encourage all of them to do what they need to do, which and part of what they need to do is to learn how to cooperate together for the benefit of everybody who is in the country. Really fascinating to think about, because I think what I also wanted to say, and this brings us back to Ancestor Fortnite, is we don't have, you know, we Halloween is like you know, our equivalent, <laughs> if there is any like minimal right. amount of equivalent, and, but, but we don't actually have a time and Halloween, set aside. Halloween we, was the equivalent. But I mean, now it, it's not. Like now, now it's, it's a Hallmark holiday. You know? a, so what we don't have is like an actual time where we honor our ancestors as part of a flow, which is what they do in India. This is the beginning of the holiday season. So maybe just talk about the importance of Ancestor Fortnite, because we've got like a billion people in India, maybe not, you know, the majority of whom are Hindu are doing something around the ancestor fortnite. So can you just talk about why this period is so important and where it is in the calendar? And I think we should include the billion people in China who have an ancestor event that is also sometime in the Northern Hemisphere. These things happen in the autumn of the year because that's the time the year is dying. Mm -hmm. So this is the nor this is a and that's why there was uh, Halloween, which is the eve of All Hallows Day, when you were supposed to go and pay attention to all your ancestors. So 
even today that there are still, I'm sure, hundreds of millions of Chinese that pay attention to their ancestors and hundreds of millions of Indians. So there is a very strong astral world focus on these things in the autumn and in India in particular during the ancestor fortnight, which admittedly it's a lunar holiday. So, I mean, a lunar period It changes every year, but it's usually in roughly in September. You think of the autumnal equinox as being like the sunset of the year. So this is a logical time to worship the ancestors. So Indian ancestor worship is slightly complex. There are things that you are expected to do after someone passes on, particularly in that two-week period that is called the Sutaka. There's also a two-week period after a birth. It's when the astral world and the ancestral world is open. You're expected not to go to the temple, not to do anything auspicious, but to just let everything remain nice and and focused on the family, either the birth, someone coming in, or the death, someone going out. During that period, you ideally do some a specific ritual called Pindadan Shraddha, then after one year, you repeat that ritual. Sometimes, of course, you can't, it doesn't work out to to do that. And then you may end up doing it in a different place under different circumstances. But it's always regarded as being appropriate to worship your ancestors. If you can do it during what, the ancestor fortnight. What does worship mean? Let's like really get granular here. So, um, the 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 simplest kind of uh, worship or appreciation that Vimalananda taught me he called tarpana, mm-hmm. and tarpana comes from a Sanskrit root that means to satisfy or to gratify. In his opinion, the simplest possible tarpana that you could do is to on a an appropriate day, and that appropriate day. Uh, new moon days are always appropriate. Really, it can be done. It can be done anytime, but it's best to do it when the moon is waning, meaning after the full moon has happened and before the new moon or up to the end of the new moon. And that it should be done after suns any day after sunrise up until the sun is directly overhead. So, Noon, but not noon on the clock, noon local mean time when it's really the sun is at its zenith, the maximum. So between during that, you know, quarter of the day, preferably you go down to the banks of a river, a lake, a stream or or the ocean, the sea. If you can't do that, you do it wherever you happen to be. But ideally, you do it on the banks of something. And you sit down there. Maybe you bring some incense with you if available. And you request you calm your mind and then you request the ancestors to come and be present and you invite all of them in general but uh, do you have to know all their names or can you just kind of if you know their names i mean it's like inviting anyone to anything if you know their names they're better but if you don't know their names you just say my mother and my father and my mother's mother and father and my father's mother and father and their mother, their parents and their and their uncles and aunts and cousins and so on. And so as many names as you personally know, put those names in. And um, you actually have a list of the names that you call forward. So, so I, people know, like I, you can have a cheat I, sheet. <laughs> I have a I have a cheat sheet and um, and I don't limit this to 
blood ancestors. I include all the blood ancestors that I know the names of, and of course the ones I don't. And I include everybody from Vimalananda's family since I've taken on that responsibility, cremated him, done Shraddha for him. But also there are people that were like family. And so I behave towards them as if they are were family and were my blood ancestors. And so I include their names also. So anybody who you feel a familial connection to is somebody that you can invite. Mm. They just have to be dead. That's the main thing. Uh, because, And I say that because in the past, it has been the case that people who know how to do this uh, ritual really well, there have been cases where they have admittedly, not often, but by doing the ritual, you could encourage someone who's still alive to move in the direction of being connected to the ancestors. That would be a karma, a big karma for you. But the the thing is, when you're doing this work, you're bringing harmony into your family line. So if there are people who are going to become ancestors, you're actually helping to harmonize them by harmonizing with these ancestors yourself, right? Yes. And so you're basically, I mean, would you say that you're basically clearing karma? And so yes, yes, this, this process of doing tarpana, which you can do on every new moon, but especially during the ancestor fortnight, because there's momentum, right? There's right. a lot of people doing this work, mm-hmm. which sort of thins the veil and makes it easier to do this work, wouldn't you say? And that's why this is a really good time of year to clear karma. It also makes sense within the, if you are following Indian tradition and you understand the Indian calendar, doing this first, we're sort of setting a good foundation for all the other processes that will happen throughout the fall. So this is a really rich time to actually make progress and to remove some of those potential obstacles that are coming up in your own karmic field, whether you understand it or not, maybe relating to your ancestors. Do you have anything to add to that? (laughs) Or do you want to talk about how the calendar flows, like how this leads into where we're going? The calendar for this whole process begins with uh, Guru Purnima. So you worship the Guru. And then after Guru Purnima, there comes Shravana. And Shravana is meant for worshiping Shiva and becoming like a Shiva Linga and becoming calm and well aligned. And then there's the Ganesh, the Ganapati festival. And that happens in the bright fortnight of the lunar month of Bhadrapada. And so that's to remove any ob- possible obstacles. And then there's the ancestor fortnight. Mm-hmm. So now we've aligned ourselves. We've calmed ourselves down. We've requested Ganapati to remove any kind of obstacles. And then we connect to the ancestors. After which, the next day after Sarvapitru Amwasya, after that new moon for the ancestors, the very next day is the beginning of the autumn Navaratri, when you start to accumulate Shakti, when you worship the goddess. So you're, why, why do you feel okay about accumulating Shakti? Because you've satisfied the ancestors, because you've gotten Ganapati to remove the obstacles. And maybe you've given something up during Shravana. So you've kind of cleared out your own system. Maybe you've done some fasting. And you've, you've tried to make your awareness as much like a Shivalinga as possible. And you bowed down to your guru first to get the whole process started. Mm -hmm. So the ancestor fortnight is a, is a critical part of this because you want to benefit the ancestors, but the best way to benefit the ancestors in the context of accumulating Shakti is not to let them accumulate Shakti directly, but for you to accumulate Shakti in this time and place where you happen to be located as the living organism 
the representative of all these people who were living but are not living anymore. So you as the representative of this lineage of previously living people, you were there. And the better that your awareness can be uh, purified and focused on being as transparent to reality as it can then is going to be of better use to the ancestors than if you're just trying to shovel energy in their direction. I always tell my clients during the ancestor fortnight, it's not a good time to try to like start something new or project yourself out and be like out there actively selling things that you've just created. Like it's a time where we're honoring things that have already happened. So the energy is kind of pulling us towards the past instead of towards the future. So I don't know if you have anything that you would add to that, but like really just, taking this time is going to be beneficial later. But but if you don't take this time, there may be consequences. Um, just that Vimal Ananda said that you should not start anything new, anything auspicious new during this fortnight, because that's exactly the case. You are, you, this is the time that you should be tending to everybody who has come in the past. You should not be trying to project your own karmas and your own interests and your own desires forward. This is the time that you try to make sure that your own past is as aligned as possible so that when you do, with the onset of Navaratri, accumulate energy so that you can move forward, you are doing so with the a harmonious quality in the ancestors supporting you instead of a non-harmonious quality of the ancestors potentially influencing your awareness and somehow compromising or sabotaging what you may be doing, trying to do otherwise. Yeah. So it doesn't always work on everyone's schedule <laughs> to try to honor these things, but they have such a deep resonance, you know, when we do, and it really helps us with our ultimate goal, which is to try to get, you know, beyond the material, beyond, you know, the things that are holding us to ourselves. So because this is something that is a, it can, uh, the, the, the dates for the ancestor fortnight can be known several years in advance. You can Schedule. You, can, you can structure your schedule from years in advance to make sure that, in fact, you were taking some time off mm. to focus on this at that time. I also just want to say, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that Sarva Pitru Amavasya is going to be on an eclipse day. And for me, eclipses are often related to teasing things out. Like, they sort of quicken things. They force the karmas to the surface. Sometimes some uncomfortable things can happen. So that day in particular, I always find is a heavy day because it's the culmination and it's the day that most people are doing their ancestor worship. So there's a heavier energy anyway. New moons in general are like a death and a rebirth. But we add in, you know, that everybody's honoring their ancestors and we're focusing on the past. It's already a heavy day, adding the eclipse on there. In my astrology guidebook, which is a calendar that I put out every year, of the auspicious states that I choose and plus the Indian holidays and uh, the new moons, the full moons, all the details about transits and things like that, that you can pop into your Google calendar in there. This day is a lay low day, no matter what, but on top of it, having the eclipse. So I don't know if you have any comments on that. Definitely. All of this is true. It's also true that eclipses are particularly good for doing sadhana of various kinds because the ordinary gravity of the sun and the moon that it tends to keep our awareness fixed in a particular attitude and pattern 
is disrupted. So we have the opportunity to do something different. So this, this having an eclipse on Sarvapithraumasya, on the one hand, if you don't do anything on that day, will make your awareness even more corrupted and influenced by the more negative, the more eclipsed qualities of the awareness of those ancestors. But if you do something on that day, you have a much greater possibility to actually do something positive for the ancestors and for yourself as a result of clearing out some of those patterns that need to be cleared away. So I appreciate you bringing all this perspective and really helping people realize that this is it's kind of important. Even if you just do one thing, if you learn a little bit about your ancestral history, if you decide to go to a body of water, offer some incense, and offer it, a sweet. If you go to the body of water, invite the ancestors. If you know that, you know, your father was very fond of cake or your mother was very fond of tomatoes, bring something specific to them. Otherwise, traditionally, you should bring with you water, milk and black sesame seeds. Each ancestor that you want to specifically pay attention to, you pay attention to that ancestor, call him or her by name, preferably, put a little bit of water, a little milk, and a little black sesame seed into your palm, recite an appropriate mantra. If you don't know any other mantra, use whatever mantra you are normally reciting. And after you say that mantra... Could you, even be Amen if you don't know could any be mantra. <laughs> amen if you want to. But just at the very end, say the word... Swadha, S-V-A-D-H-A, long A at the end, Swadha. That's the specific offering word for the ancestors. And just turn your palm, so this is your right palm, turn your right palm towards your thumb. So the thumb is then pointed downward and whatever was in your hand is going to land up on the ground. And that will be an offering to that ancestor. And then at the very end, just say, thank you very much for coming. You were all my ancestors. Now, please continue to evolve in a positive direction. Amen. Yeah. In, in Lakota, in the ceremonies we do, we have a going home song where we send them all back. Yes. And so you you can do that energetically. You can send the going home song if you want to. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. And I hope this was helpful for everyone. I pray that all the ancestors will be benefited by all of their descendants and we can all move together and do something good for the world as a home, as a whole. I like as a home. <laughs> as a home also. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cosmic Business Podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review for us so other spirit-led entrepreneurs can find out about us. I want to thank Team Podcast for production support on this podcast, as well as the musicians of the music that we're listening to now, Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma, from an album Fragments of a Season, which you can check out wherever you listen to music. I hope you have a wonderful day and I look forward to connecting with you on a future episode.